Be seated. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Song of Songs. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11 this morning, or this evening, I should say. Song of Songs found in the middle of your Old Testaments. You find chapter 3. We'll be looking at uh, verses 6 through 11. And with the Word of God open, let's pray and ask for His help. Heavenly Father, we come to you now asking that you would open our eyes, that you would unstop our ears and soften our hearts. Give us eyes to see and hearts to understand that we might turn from our sinful ways and follow you, that we might learn wisdom and might apply it to our lives and help those around us to do the same. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Let me read our text for us this evening, Song of Songs, chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. Please take heed how you hear it. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and experts in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion. And look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, over the past few weeks as we've looked at the Song of Songs, we've learned a lot about love from the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon. And to be fair, we've actually learned a lot about love from the Shulamite maiden. She has shown us some of the most important things that this song has taught us so far. She's shown us the need for faithful accountability from godly friends who won't let you pursue love too quickly. She's shown us what passion sounds like in the pursuit of marriage and how significant it is to find someone who takes his cues about marital roles from God's word. We've also seen that boundaries are good, but purity is really about the heart posture and fear of the Lord. We don't just build walls, we understand why they're there. Solomon has shown us what it means to pursue the one you love with intensity, to positively influence her with your words and actions, and to respect her waiting for marriage before pursuing physical intimacy. And finally, in our text this evening, we come to the wedding. In fact, the wedding will take place over the course of a couple of chapters, but this evening's text is really the, the ceremony proper, the wedding ceremony with all its pomp and circumstance. And while our text this evening is rather short, it offers tremendous insight into God's thoughts about the wedding ceremony. Now, I'm sure there are among us those who have eloped, or had very small, or even what you might consider to be an irreverent wedding ceremony. I hesitate to share the story of my and my wife's original plan to get married. 
which may or may not have included Las Vegas and a motorcycle and a guy who sang with a twang. It, it didn't happen, but it was on the table. <laughs> and so I, I say that to say that if perhaps your wedding ceremony was not particularly God-focused or Christian or in a church, this sermon is not designed to shame you, nor is it meant to necessarily include or encourage outlandish spending on a wedding in light of Solomon's ability to build himself a chariot made from silver and gold and purple linen. Rather, the point is simply that the public wedding ceremony is itself important and it should be treated with due attention and honor. Now, for some of you young people who think it's appropriate to just dip out and elope, uh, get married in secret, either because your folks don't approve, or perhaps you want to just keep things low-key, let me challenge that idea a little bit from Scripture this evening. What we'll see in our text is that the ceremony itself is special, and it's okay to recognize and treat your wedding day as a special event and as we work through the text, we'll understand some of the reasons why it's special. But for now, let me just say this to kind of get us moving in the right direction. The reason that a wedding ceremony itself, the proper wedding ceremony is so important, is because it's a covenant ceremony. And whether or not you're thinking in these terms is irrelevant. Your wedding ceremony has heavenly, eternal, and theological significance it points both the happy couple and those gathered to witness the wedding to Christ. It's meant to cause the hearts of the people to be drawn upward to heaven where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And each wedding service, officiated according to Scripture, is a living parable of the gospel itself. What a privilege it is to participate in a wedding, either as the one being married, or as the officiant, or even as a witness in the pew. And to our unmarried, let me encourage your hearts this evening as well. Just like in baptism, in which we're told to improve upon our own baptism by considering all the promises and privileges which have been signified and sealed to us, so too attending a wedding gives a single person an opportunity to improve upon their own relationship with Christ and all the gospel's promises and privileges that the wedding represents. It's meant to remind you of your heavenly husband, of his love for you, and his coming with the cloud of glory and sweeping you up into the air to take you to his father's house. Well, before I give too much away, let me outline the text so we can stay together as we look at God's word. This evening, I want us to see five things about a biblical wedding ceremony, five things that we ought to aim for if your wedding is sometime in the future that we should celebrate the next time we attend a wedding, or that should we, we should remember fondly if we've already had our wedding. Number one, a biblical wedding is a public ceremony. A biblical wedding is attended to by God himself. A biblical wedding results in a safe wife. A biblical wedding is undergirded with true love. And a biblical wedding is given for our joy. Well, what do we mean that it's a public ceremony? Uh, this whole text makes very clear that the wedding is a public event. It's a public ceremony. We might even use the word spectacle when we consider just how elaborate this wedding, uh, wedding ceremony that we see here in Song of Songs chapter 3 is. 
what's coming up from the wilderness, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and the fragrant powders of the merchant. It's the carriage or the couch of Solomon, 60 mighty men surrounding it with their swords on. Solomon himself made it with the wood of Lebanon and, and pillars of silver and a back of gold and a seat of fine linen, and it's inlaid with love. This is, and he's wearing a crown as well. This is a very elaborate wedding ceremony. And of course, it's a uh, a public ceremony. If we look at verse 11, uh, the speaker here says, go out, O daughters of, jo- of Zion, and look at this spectacle. This is the sort of wedding that would uh, put most of the elaborate weddings of the last century to shame. Chariots and silver and gold and a crown and entourage, the double the size of David's mighty men. This was not meant to magnify the value of such extravagance, but rather to show that a wedding ceremony is itself extravagantly important. It's worth pulling out all the stops, not for the sake of impressing people, but because of what it is. It's a covenant ceremony. A biblical wedding is the coming together of two people to make them one. It's the joining of lives, body, soul, and mind into one. As one pastor put it, it's a small miracle to make one plus one equal one. And that's what happens at a biblical wedding. And in our text this evening, we see that it's made much of, and people from all around witness it. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look. And this ought to be our desire in a public wedding ceremony, to invite other people to see the goodness of God in this marriage to encourage their hearts with the opportunity to witness God's kind providence, to see how the Lord has worked together this wonder for his people. Let's be honest, each of us here, married or otherwise, is so uniquely idiosyncratic that it is a miracle that we can find anyone willing to spend a lifetime in the same house with us. We're not all as strange as we could be, but taking two sinners and making them into two sardines seems like a recipe for disaster. Yet in a God-honoring marriage, we have joy and love and mutual support and fellowship and the best friendship a person could ever find or want. The wedding ceremony is inherently public because it's for all the people to see and to give glory for God for this wonderful work that he's done in the lives of these people. And so to my young friends who perhaps aim to be married soon or would want to get married, Others of you have a ways to go. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that you should just elope or minimize the public nature of the wedding. It's a worship service. If you've attended a a wedding here at Christ Covenant Church, you know that it's a service of worship. We begin with a call to worship, and it's structured according to Scripture. We read the Word, and we confess our sins, and we ask for God's presence. And the Word is preached because God is the one who ordains and uh, affirms the vows being made. It's public because you take your wedding vows not just before God, but in the presence of the church. And you're saying to each person here, I am now off limits to everyone on earth except for this person. And my intention before God and you is to be faithful to them unto death. Commitment like that is not only rare in our day and age, it's often mocked, isn't it? How can you commit to only one person for the rest of your life? It's not natural. We're really only evolved animals, and almost all animals mate widely. Why should we be nailed down? This is what makes biblical marriage so special. It's an acknowledgement that we're binding ourselves together in covenant, 
in the same way that God himself binds himself to us in covenant. And as he is the one who keeps covenant with us, we too reflect that in our commitments to each other in a wedding ceremony. This must be celebrated publicly. We have the chance to magnify God's character and his ways, especially as it reflects his love for us and his son, Jesus Christ. We ought to make a public spectacle, if I can use that word again, of his fidelity to us. A public wedding ceremony is nothing less than the public witness to the goodness and loving kindness of God towards sinners. So a biblical wedding ought to be public, at least as far as we're able for it to be, for the glory of God and the good of those who witness it. A biblical wedding is also to be understood as being attended to by God himself. Look at verse 6 with me. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? It doesn't take a biblical scholar to hear the references to the exodus there. The people coming up through the wilderness being led by a pillar of cloud. The text here is saying something very similar. It's the presence of God leading his people towards their appointed goal. It reminds us that God is the one who sovereignly ordains and leads us to marriage. When he has prepared someone for us, it is God himself who walks us down the aisle. He attends both our preparation and our vows. Of course, not all marriages work out, do they? Many have ended in divorce, but that doesn't mean that God has not been at work or that he is somehow faulty in his design. Remember that the couple that we're looking at here in the Song of Songs is the couple that's listened to godly wisdom about purity, about passion, about love, about boundaries, about longing, and about romance. They didn't hop into bed the first time they saw one another. They didn't live together for some time to test things out to see if it would work. They didn't ignore the biblical counsel of their friends. It is noteworthy that marriages that begin with cohabitation are 25% more likely to end in divorce. This couple has heeded the godly counsel and wisdom offered to them, and therefore the Lord attends their wedding. He's part of the bridal procession, and he's central to the marriage both from its ordination to its consummation. I hope you see the application here. It's so important that young couples pursuing marriage heed biblical wisdom on how to remain God-honoring in their courtship. That they not get ahead of God in his design lest they lose the blessing of God and the presence of God in their marriage. So biblical marriages are both public because of what they represent and God is there in them because of who designed them. And thirdly, biblical weddings ought to result in a woman feeling safe. I know that seems a little bit odd to throw that in there, but I think it's very important. It's something that I've tried to encourage young couples in biblical or premarital counseling with for years. Look at verses 7 and 8. Behold, the, the litter of Solomon, the, the, the couch of Solomon here, around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wearing swords and experts in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. Solomon has 60 of his mighty men with him to attend this wedding, each with his sword. You know, when the minister asks the father of the bride, who gives this woman to be married to this man? 
The expectation is that when dad says, her mother and I do, that the father can sit down next to his wife, grab her hand in his, and squeeze knowingly that their daughter is in good hands. That he's given her to someone who will care as much and more as he did for her in her youth. In fact, it's why we ask the father of the bride to place the hands of the betrothed couple together. If you, again, if you've been to a wedding here, you'll know that the father of the bride walks uh, the, the woman down the aisle, and he stands in between the man and the woman to be married for a, a lengthy period of time. Uh, as, as we introduce the wedding and talk about the public nature of a wedding ceremony, as we are called to worship and even sing to the Lord together, and then when the father is asked who gives this woman, and he says, her mother and I do, he takes the hands of the two to be married and puts them together, symbolically passing his daughter off to her new man, the new man in her life who's going to care for her and provide for her and protect her and, and nurture and cherish her as much or more than he did. And so a father and mother should be able to give their daughter to a young man and know that she's safe, and she herself should enter into marriage feeling safe. That's not the only emotion you feel at a wedding, is it, ladies? There's excitement, there's uh, anticipation and gladness and joy. If we were to read chapter 4, which we'll get to next week, we would see even more emotions and excitement than all that. But at the foundation of it, he comes to the wedding prepared to protect his wife. If I can say it this way, prepared to go to war for her. To give himself up sacrificially, both physically and spiritually, to know and protect and provide for her. A woman should go into a marriage feeling safe like that. Young ladies, if you don't feel safe in your relationships that the man that you're interested in or the young man that you're dating, that he will be a faithful protector and a faithful leader and one who will cherish you and you alone and nurture you and be willing to go to war for you. There's something wrong with that relationship. That's who a man is supposed to be for his wife. That doesn't mean you pick up a sword and fight, but it means you fight for your wife. And young men... Some of you uh, uh, here this evening are unmarried and, and maybe have no interest in being married at this point in your life, but I often counsel young men who are interested in courtship or marriage, it's important that you aim to become this sort of man now. Become the sort of man now that a young lady can want to marry. Don't promise to become that man once you get married. This is the illustration that I use with young men when I'm counseling them in this regard, no sane person is going to follow a man walking aimlessly through the woods without a map or compass. You wouldn't. If you were lost in the woods and you came across a person in the woods who is as lost and helpless as you were, you wouldn't follow him to see where he might end up. Rather, you want to find the person who knows where they're going, who's stepping towards their appointed goal, who's got map and compass in hand and knows how to navigate the treacheries of the, of the forest. That's the sort of man that you want to follow. And young men, no young lady is going to want to follow you aimlessly around while you try to figure out how to be a grown man who's godly and faithful and dependable. Be that young man now. 
pursue godliness and pursue the Lord Jesus Christ, pursue spiritual leadership opportunities and serving in the church that the young ladies who are interested in marriage might be able to look at you and say, he's already the sort of person that I can submit to and respect. Well, a biblical wedding is public. It's a covenant ceremony. And it's attended to by God himself, for he designed it, and he affirms the vows taken. The biblical wedding also results in a young woman feeling safe, and she should feel that way for the rest of her life, knowing that the man that she's married will be a faithful protector who will cherish and nurture her all of her days. A biblical wedding is also to be undergirded with love, isn't it? Look at verses 9 and 10. King Solomon has, has arrived for the wedding. He's rode up over the wilderness with his 60 mighty men, all prepared for war. And then it tells us in verse 9 and 10 that he himself is the one who prepared his carriage. Solomon himself made a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, and its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Well, far too many weddings today are based on lust or on convenience or perhaps on the presence of an unplanned child or on the desire to get out from under their parents' authority or just to be free to have sex when they want to or because that's what all their friends are doing. Now, not one of these is a good reason to get married and some of them are worse than others. Now, they may sound like fine reasons to get married if you ignore the covenantal aspect of marriage, of God's presence in marriage. But otherwise, think about this. Most of us here would not even consider adopting a puppy just because our friends have one. Just adding that amount of responsibility to your life, to care for another creature, knowing how much that's going to cost you in your day-to-day -day life. And yet some people enter into marriage for far sillier reasons and with far less thought than adopting a puppy. But a godly marriage and a biblical wedding, I should say, needs to be undergirded with true love, thoughtful love, preparation in love, not lust, not just a desire to have access to someone else's body, but a desire to know and care for and cherish and support and honor someone else. It's a love that reflects Christ's love, isn't it? It's a sacrificial love. It's a committed and faithful love. It's true love. Look at what Solomon does to prepare just to arrive at the wedding. Think about the amount of time it must have taken to build this chariot that he arrives in. He has to make it by himself with the wood of Lebanon, all the labor of cutting down the trees and, and shaping them and preparing them to, to fit together and make this carriage. He has to fashion posts out of silver, and the back of his seat is made out of gold, overlaid with gold at the very least, but very extravagant and time-consuming. Its seat is made from purple, and its interior is inlaid with love. This takes time. Solomon doesn't rush into this wedding, does he? We've had three chapters already of eager anticipation and faithful, patient waiting, because Solomon knows, and his young Shulamite maiden knows, that it's important to ensure that love is not awakened before its time. That the sort of 
commitment being made here is ready to be made to last forever. It's a love that reflects Christ's love. Think about what Paul tells us in Galatians that when the fullness of time came, God sent his son. Not before the time and not too late, but right on time. And he was prepared for the work that he came to do. But so many marriages start without this underpinning of love. They simply start with lust. Or perhaps they start with frustration at home and a desire to get out. Or with loneliness or with disappointment in past relationships. I know sometimes it can be difficult to wait. And it can be difficult to tell the difference at a young age, can't it? That's why so much of the Song of Songs is dedicated to reminding us to pursue biblical wisdom and the godly counsel and accountability of Christian friends, and to be patient. It's so fascinating that in the midst of this, this song, which is oftentimes, I think, uh, unnecessarily referred to as erotic, but it's certainly a romantic poem. It's a song about intimacy and, and the, the joy experienced in the physical relationship between a man and a woman. And there's longing and desire and, and, and explicit poetry that talks about how excited they are to be together and to be in love. And they even consummate their marriage. But sprinkled throughout this text are these pause buttons. Slow them down and remind them not to get ahead of God's timing. Not to allow their flesh to take over and take charge of the process and they ask others around them to help them don't they especially this young maiden the shulamite woman she asks all the daughters of jerusalem to not stir up love or awaken it until it pleases to hold her back to keep her from going ahead back in chapter two the young man is solomon as he comes over the hills and over the mountains eager and excited to be with his beloved he stops and he realizes, you know, there's barriers here for a reason, and I should respect those and wait. And so many young people today want to get married as fast as they can. And there's all sorts of reasons why this is so, but if your marriage that you're hoping to enter into is not founded upon the presence of God and rooted in true love, you're starting off asking for some trouble. It's better not to get married today than to marry the wrong person tomorrow. And the one who heeds the counsel of this song puts themselves in a position to know what real love is and to offer real love to someone else and to find a lifetime of faithfulness in marriage. And let me say very briefly before we look at the last point together, true love takes work, doesn't it? You have been married for a while, know this is true. Now, that doesn't mean that love is this continuous laborious process and every day you've got to sort of excite yourself again for another day with your spouse. At least I hope that's not the case. But it does take work. We have to commit to loving that person every day, to bearing with them and living with them in all their weaknesses and infirmities and, and them us as well. It's not as easy as just the fluttery feelings you get in your tummy when you're around somebody that you like. It's not as simple as just a knowing glance across the room and from then on you're just smitten with feelings of love at every moment. 
Just like Solomon had to labor to build this carriage and make it beautiful before it was ready for his betrothed, he had to work hard to get to the wedding, and he'll have to work hard afterwards. You have to be willing to work for true love. Love yet found or for the love that you already have with your spouse. Are you willing to work for it? Again, I know I keep speaking to the young people here. It's for all of us, really. But for those of you who are not yet married and are thinking about marriage, are you willing to work for that love? Biblical love requires, or excuse me, biblical marriage requires true love, and it's a love that must be worked for. Lastly, look at verse 11 with me. I love this verse. The, the uh, speaker here, which I, I believe is the, the woman, the Shulamite woman who's watching Solomon come over the hill and arrive in his carriage for the wedding day, and she's about to be um, adorned with his words of romance and, and adoration in chapter 4, which we'll look at next week. But in verse 11, she speaks to those who are around her with the excitement you can hear in her voice that her wedding day has finally arrived. And she says, Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. This is not Solomon's kingly crown, of course. This is a wedding wreath that would have been commonly worn in the ancient Near East on a wedding day. Look at him with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. The day of the gladness of his heart. That's what she calls the wedding day. Most of us can look back over the course of our lives and think of a few days that stand out as particularly special. For some of you, maybe it was the day you retired. That was just an exciting time to get to at that stage in your life where you could step back from the grind of daily work and, and spend more time with the things that interest you more or with your wife, perhaps, or your husband. For the birth of our children, many of us look back at the births of our children. Perhaps those are sort of a combination of the most joyful and stressful days of our lives. And every day after is increasingly stressful. But we look back at those special moments in, in our past as a, as a day of gladness. The wedding day is referred to here as the day of the gladness of Solomon's heart. I love that. That's how a wedding should be. A wedding that's rooted in true love and waits for God's timing and is aware of the covenant nature of a marriage. It's a day of the gladness of heart. You know, we could talk about how Solomon's joy is the joy of every husband on his wedding day or how the Shulamite woman's counsel to the daughters of Zion to go look upon the beauty of her groom is the, the feeling of every bride as she opens the doors and sees her betrothed standing at the end of the aisle waiting anxiously for her there. Those things are all true. But as we close, I want us to consider for a moment things a bit higher than that. Things perhaps too great and marvelous for us to consider. We know that marriage is a mystery, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, and he tells us that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, this doesn't imply that Christ's love for the church is an image of a good marriage or that Christ's love for us is modeled after a godly man's love for his wife. Rather, it means that all marriages are designed to point us 
to their perfect realization in the person and work of Christ and his love for us. We get it backwards when we think that God gave Eve to Adam and said, you know what, that's a great idea. I'm going to use that for Christ's love for the church. Instead, Christ's love for us started before eternity began. And it was his love for us that God used to model Adam and Eve's relationship in the garden and ours with our spouses. So all of our marriages in some way draw our attention to Christ's love for the church. When we consider the joy of a wedding or the love of a bride and groom, our hearts should be filled with the joy of these realities. Of course, they're wonderful. They're gifts from God. But when we start to think about Christ and his love for us, our hearts should explode with anticipation of the consummation of our relationship with him. Our minds should flood with thoughts of our eternal bliss in the presence of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our souls should burst with joy at the idea of Christ coming on the clouds of heaven to take us home. Whatever she was feeling here in verse 6, what is that coming up from the wilderness like clouds of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and with all the fragrant powers, uh, powders of a merchant? Behold, it's the chariot of Solomon. That's nothing compared to what it's going to be like to see Christ coming in glory for us. Our hearts should be drawn upward when we think about a biblical wedding. No procession of Solomon with his 60 mighty men can compare with the procession of Christ with his 12 legions of angels blowing trumpets and calling us home. No perfumed groom in all his pomp and with all his gold and silver and purple linens of the world can compare with the beauty of the one whose eyes are like a blaze of fire and whose hair is white like wool and whose feet are like burnished bronze and whose face shines like the noonday sun in all its strength. And he's coming for us to bring us home, to take us to himself forever, to demonstrate his love and his fidelity and his tenderness towards us for all eternity, to complete his covenant that he's made with us. You know, in chapter 4, Solomon is going to sing this song of romantic love to his new wife. He's going to talk about how much he loves her and how desirous he is to be with her. And there's something uniquely absent, I think, from the end of chapter 3, and maybe you noticed it. There's no feast. There's no mention of a great feast. Just Solomon coming in all of his glory, prepared to take his bride to his bed. But when Christ comes to bring us home, you know, the Bible tells us he's prepared a great feast for us. All the delights of a wedding feast. And what ought to really throw us off of our understanding of everything we've ever thought about what it means to love someone else he says that he's going to serve us he'll be our groom forever and we'll be his eternal bride and he himself will serve us according to his love a biblical wedding is all these things that we've said a biblical wedding is a public ceremony it's attended to by God. It results in the safety and security of the bride. It's undergirded with love and it's for our joy. But a biblical wedding is these things because Christ is all the things we've just mentioned. 
because he's our heavenly husband, because he himself is faithful and compassionate towards us, because he himself keeps covenant forever. And so as we consider what wedding ceremonies ought to be, let's not forget to keep him central in our hearts and minds and in our marriages, for it's to Christ's love in the church that they point. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this instruction from your word concerning marriage. We ask that you would help those of us who are married to remember your presence in our wedding and in our marriage day by day, to remember the faithfulness of Christ and his love for us as we consider our relationships with our spouses. We pray, Lord, for our young people here that you would guard their hearts and minds, and you would keep them back from foolish decisions or impulsive decisions or eager anticipation that's not guarded by the wisdom of Scripture and of godly counsel? Would you help them to undergird the relationships with true love modeled after Christ's love for his church? Would you help the young men of our church to grow into godly men who are respectable and and worth submitting to and ready to be followed and themselves ready to lead? Would you help the young women of our church, Lord, to not awaken love until it pleases, to be eager and excited for a wedding day as many young women are, to, to long for and look forward to finding a man who will keep her safe and provide and protect her, but not to rush out ahead of your plan or ahead of the godly counsel of wise people in her life, her parents and, and her friends and, and the church. Lord, would you protect the many people here who are married from unfaithfulness, from failed marriages and disappointment, or even from trying to find satisfaction in a person that can only be found in Christ. I pray that you would help us all, Lord, to remember how significant marriage is because it's your design for us. You designed it in in your kind providence. You give it to those that you have chosen to give it to, and Lord, we need your help to work hard at it for Christ's reputation and for your glory and for our good. So we ask your Spirit's help in all these matters. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's conclude our hour of worship by singing our closing hymn, which is found in your Trinity hymnal number 660, O God Beyond All Praising. <laughs>